Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's racist response to his latest indictments, aiming his dog whistle at the black prosecutors and judges who are accusing and trying him. Judge Chutkin, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, Atlanta DA Fannie Willis and New York Attorney General Letitia James. On True Social, Trump introduced a new racial slur based on the N-word, riggers, which he coined, and right-wing media and websites are running with it. Joining us from Atlanta is Andrew Gillespie, a professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University, where she teaches courses on American politics, race and politics, and qualitative methodology. She's the author of The New Black Politician, Cory Booker, Newark and Post-Racial America, and the editor of Who's Black Politics? Cases in Post-Racial Black Leadership, and her latest book is Race and the Obama Administration, Symbols, Substance and Hope. Then we'll examine a ruling by a judge in Montana in favor of 16 young people from 5 to 22 years of age who sued the state over a law that bars considering climate change in environmental review of energy policies. With Montana having 5,000 gas wells, 4,000 oil wells, four oil refineries and six coal mines, Judge Kathy Seeley of the Montana District Court found that the amount of fossil fuels extracted, burned, processed and exported by the state makes Montana responsible for as much carbon dioxide as is produced by Argentina, the Netherlands or Pakistan. Joining us is Michael Gerard, a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law and energy regulation, and is director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Legal Pathways to Deep Carbonization in the United States. And we will discuss his article at MSNBC, A Deep Red State Just Delivered a Huge Win for Climate Justice. Then finally, with Biden celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act at the White House today, we'll discuss Bidenomics with an economist, Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators, and he drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives, and officially advises her on economic policy. The Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, his latest books are Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy 
and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Andre Gillespie, who's a professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University, where she teaches courses on American politics, race and politics, and qualitative methodology. She's the author of The New Black Politician, Cory Booker, Newark, and Post-Racial America, and the editor of Who's Black Politics? Cases in Post-Racial Black Leadership. And the latest book is Race and the Obama Administration, Symbols, Substance, and Hope. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andra Gillespie. Thank you. So, Andra, there's been a rather nasty, perhaps predictable, but nevertheless extremely nasty response to Fannie Wills' fourth indictment of Trump and 18 others. And there are these right-wing websites called Gab and Patriots.win that are running with a statement that Trump made on social media, I'll quote him, they never went after those that rigged the election, Trump wrote. They only went after those that fought to find the riggers. Now, it's not difficult to see that that's a play on the N-word, and apparently all over these right-wing websites like Gab, they're posting pictures of Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shane Moss with using the banner vote riggers and uh, apparently it's proliferating all across right-wing media at the same time right-wing media is publishing the names and addresses of the grand jurors who brought about these indictments so what's the local reaction in Atlanta now from this assault which is very likely to get much worse well, a, a lot of this information is stuff that is, is, is just coming out over the last few hours. So um, I, I can't gauge what the mood is like outside, um, as I've been working um, for most of the day. But, you know, this is, is, is troubling. Um, you know, if we were to look at the, the, the day of the indictment, there, you know, wasn't a, a big presence of, of, of people, at, um, from what I could tell from the reports, who were, you know, standing outside and milling around the courthouse. And there were certainly um, security precautions and, 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 and objects that were in the way and kind of a blockading entrance to try to dissuade people from engaging um, in the type of activity that, you know, could escalate into something um, um, violent. Um, I, from what I do understand is that there were people who were out there who were protesting some other issues um, on um, the, the, the day of the indictment. Um, I think it will remain a matter of time, and we have to see how people react to this. But to just react to just the larger discussion, um, you know, we have seen Donald Trump explicitly play to race, and this seems to be a race-neutral way of using coded language and inventing new coded language in real time to say the same thing. So, um, you know, we're playing on and sort of paying attention to the rhyming and the all-caps use of the word riggers to suggest that this might be a code in the same way that Let's Go Brandon turned into a code um, for this, and I think that that's 100% plausible and, and certainly makes sense contextually. And we also know that in uh, the era of cancel culture, and this works both ways from the left and the right, that doxing has become an unfortunate um, way that some people use to try to weaponize, um, uh, to weaponize and to criticize the decisions that people make that are unpopular. So, uh, you know, this is really unfortunate, and I pray for the safety of those 
uh, who were involved in the grand jury who made their vote based on the evidence and based on their own conscience. And so we certainly hope that they're safe. And I assume that uh, there will be police protection um, as law enforcement becomes aware of this. And of course, doxing is publishing home addresses, which is what's happening now with the, the sites like Gab and Patriot.win. And also these sites, along with showing pictures of Ruby Freeman and her daughter with the banner Riggers, Vote Riggers, uh, or just Riggers, they're also posting images of nooses and gallows. So that has a, a really ugly history, does it not? It has a very ugly history, and that's actually very explicit. Um, you know, so aside from the, just the physical threat of violence, um, because somebody um, didn't engage in the activity that she wanted them to engage in, um, despite the fact that, um, you know, investigations have, you know, completely proved that, uh, that Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman did nothing illegal when they were counting votes as their job for the Fulton County um, Election Board. There's still people who refuse to, to believe the evidence that says that Georgia's election was free and fair. Um, you know, it, it's ironic um, and actually very sad that, you know, part of the conspiracy charges include people who were physically intimidating um, Ruby Freeman in particular. Um, and so some of the people who were charged in this larger RICO conspiracy are there because they were alleged to have you know, personally gone to, to Ruby Freeman and harassed her um, as part of this larger coordinated effort. And so while these efforts are uh, uh, spontaneous and don't appear to be coordinated at all um, with President Trump, um, it is actually just really ironic that, that people would engage in the same type of behavior that actually uh, was the type of activity that, that got, has gotten some people indicted. Um, and so, you know, you know I, I think it's unfortunate that, that, that people have, you know, have, have, have sunk to this level and that they haven't actually sort of paid attention to sort of what some of the details are in, in, in the indictment. Well, one of the details in the indictment that, that you're referring to, Andra, is a police chaplain from Illinois who showed up at Ruby Freeman's house and harassed her along with her daughter. And that sort of indicates the kind of lone wolf nature of this thing, you know, where Trump can do the incitement with his dog whistles. But these people pick it up. And this character obviously traveled from Illinois in the belief that Ruby Freeman had rigged the election and was basically attacking her, terrorizing her. She had to go into hiding. So, you know, I think an important distinction between what Stephen Lee in particular, and then also Harrison Floyd, who uh, was a, 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 a representative of Black Voices for Trump, uh, were doing when they were reaching out uh, to, to, to Ruby Freeman is, you know, aside from the intimidation aspect of it, which does, you know, could be alleged to be similar to what people are doing when they're attempting to threaten folks online and just putting threats out in, 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 in cyberspace is, one, they were approaching, um, you know, these women personally, um, particularly Ms. Freeman, and um, they were also coordinating their efforts with others. And so they uh, were doing this in consultation with other folks who are named in the indictment, and that's what makes 
their behavior particularly egregious and does actually make it distinct from people who are issuing threats in cyberspace. But I think what, you know, is dangerous about this is that when people are inspired and emboldened by the types of um, statements that former President Trump makes, and they may go and do something that inflicts harm on, on, on somebody else as a result of it. Um, you know, and, and, and we have to think about sort of, you know, January 6th and the people who, you know, came to Washington because they saw his tweet, um, you know, encouraging them to be in Washington on January 6th because it was going to be wild. And then things got out of control when some of them have, are, are you know, now facing jail time as a result of it. But do you think that the Trump is going to escalate, particularly on right-wing media and on his own Truth Social? Because, I mean, I recall on the, the last time he was indicted, the third indictment over in D.C., that evening he did a brief press conference at the airport where he suddenly went into this tangent talking about how filthy uh, Washington, D.C. is and it's dirty and it's full of, uh, full of graffiti. And it was absolutely <laughs> impossible not to, to notice that that was a dog whistle about the residents of D.C., uh, who were 45% black, and at the same time, Trump and his people were calling for a change of venue to West Virginia, which is 93% white. So, um, he, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, one, I agree, even though I, I, I would say he's taking advantage of the fact that Washington, D.C. is plurality black and is historically known as a majority black city, but also that it is run by an African-American mayor who was mayor while he was president, too, um, it, it should be noted. But he was tapping into stereotypes about cities that are marked and coded as black and about black political leadership to suggest that the Biden administration wasn't keeping D.C. in check. And he was making the claim that he makes often, that he alone can fix it, um, and that it was a campaign plea to see if you, if you put me back in charge. Um, then I'm going to clean up the city. So he was invoking law and order. He was clearly invoking stereotypes about blackness, making allegations about corrupt and incompetent leadership. And there's the dog whistle aspect of it, which was very obvious, and I think it's even more obvious because it had absolutely nothing to do with the reason why he was in D.C. that day, which was to be indicted for his role um, you know, in attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 election at the federal level. So he's going to keep on making those appeals. He's been making those appeals. So I haven't seen anything different. I think that there becomes the question about whether or not he will actually de-escalate at all, ever. Um, I don't expect him, you know, and based on what he's done in, in the last day and a half, he or last two days, he is not going to... Um, you know, he hasn't de-escalated now. I don't expect him to do so. And especially given the fact that he, you know, is advertising this press conference on Monday where he purports to provide incontrovertible evidence that the 2020 election was rigged in Georgia, I think that that is a signal um, that he does not plan to stop or he hasn't been chastened by these indictments to, you know, change his story, admit defeat, um, and to not make intemperate comments. And so I think probably the big question will be, particularly in the January 6th federal case, um, as to whether or not he goes so far that Judge Chutkin has to punish him in some way, shape, or form, um, and whether or not he 
tries to weaponize any punishment for his political benefit or whether or not he would actually be chastened by such punishment. But he's clearly, though, stirring up his base by targeting Judge Chutkin, Funny Willis in Atlanta, the DA in Manhattan, and the Attorney General, Letitia James, in New York, and all of whom are African Americans. So is that, I mean, it's pretty overt, isn't it? I can't see any other strategy but to basically tell his people that you know, African-Americans are out to get me. It's overt. It's also muddled. So I think he is saying that. And for people who um, already have latent racial resentments and already are predisposed to harbor um, racial animus towards African-Americans, they are going to focus on um, the, the, the black prosecutors and the black judge who is presiding over his case. Right. But we can't ignore Jack Smith. And so he also says intemperate things about Jack Smith as well, a white man. Um, and I think what he's doing is muddling it so that he could make the claim that it's not racist because he's attacking everybody. Um, you know, he might even include Merrick Garland in that as well. But um, Trump's modus operandi is to attack anybody who is getting in his way. And he doesn't mind invoking stereotypes about whatever identity the ops, the person who's standing in his way from preventing him from doing the things that he wants, um, carries to sort of make it effective and to rally his base of supporters behind him. So if it's effective to, you know, tap into their sexism or to tap into their racism um, in order to um, rally his base of supporters around him, he'll do that. And so... These folks are inconvenient because they are, you know, getting in the way of what he wants, um, and they have a, a particular identity marker that is exploitable. So he'll use it against them, and if he can't find one, he'll make one up about you. Um, and so sometimes he'll use that as a tool or a, a ploy to deflect criticism about the inherent racism or sexism or otherism of the attack. Um, so ultimately, this is, this is, you know, in some ways about his own sort of self-centeredness um, and expediency. But the fact that he doesn't mind playing towards those stereotypes is problematic and should be called out for the racism or the sexism that it is. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, clearly this is a strategy on Trump's part to rile up his base and get them to the polls, right? So what's happening on the other side? Vice President Kamala Harris has expressed recently her concerns that African-American turnout is not going to be sufficient. Barack Obama is also expressing concerns about the 2024 election turnout. And we know that there wasn't the same African-American turnout for Hillary Clinton as there was for Obama. And that may have cost her, particularly in Wisconsin and these other other two states where she barely lost uh, and where Trump squeaked by with, with the Electoral College. So is there a countervailing strategy on the part of the Democrats, or is it possible that the African-American community is going to be rightly indignant about Trump's racist dog whistles and be motivated? The Democrats shouldn't assume that blacks are going to show up um, just because, um, and that they don't have to campaign in black communities because regardless of the voter turnout, the black vote is likely going to go about 90% Democratic. 
if, if, if the Democrats want black voters to show up and vote, they're going to have to start campaigning now in black communities. Um, and they can bring up the allegations against Trump as evidence of, of the reason why uh, Demo- uh, blacks should vote for, for Joe Biden, um, even if they don't like everything that he's done in, in his term as president of the United States. But the biggest mistake would be to not allocate resources um, and to not allocate personnel to um, co- black communities in particular, but also to do outreach amongst all black people in the United States, regardless of where they live. Um, we know from, um, from survey data that people of color in general report having fewer contacts with campaigns and groups that seek to mobilize voters. So now you have um, you know, a little more than a year to rectify that inequality by reaching out to black voters at the same rate that you reach out to white voters um, and make sure that you're reminding them, that you're educating them about you know, where to vote, when to vote, how to vote, what to bring with you, and what issues are at stake in doing the job of you know, at least trying to persuade black voters uh, to turn out and vote for the Democratic candidate. Now, this you know, doesn't guarantee that everybody's going to vote um, uh, Democratic, and it doesn't guarantee uh, that Joe Biden is going to win. But if you don't do this job of, of get out the vote, then you can't expect to you know, have high turnout amongst these groups. Well, Andrew Gillespie, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Andre Gillespie, who's a professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University, where she teaches courses on American politics, race and politics, and qualitative methodology. And she's the author of The New Black Politician, Cory Booker, Newark and Post-Racial America, the editor of Who's Black Politics, Cases in Post-Racial Black Leadership, and her latest book is Race and the Obama Administration, Symbols, Substance, and Hope. We're going to take a brief station break back examining a ruling by a judge in Montana in favor of 16 young people from 15 to 22 years of age who sued the state over laws at bar considering climate change and environmental review of energy policies. Southern man Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Gerard, who's a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is director of the Sabine Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States. And he has an article at MSNBC, A Deep Red State Just Delivered a Huge Win for Climate Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Girard. Good to be, good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And the deep uh, red state of Montana delivered a huge win for the state for young people around the world, for democracy, and uh, for the climate. So a surprise, but a really pleasant one, wouldn't you say? 
yes, I think it was exactly the right decision from the court. Uh, the court heard climate scientists. They were on the stand. They were subject to cross-examination under both, and the court uh, believed them. The court agreed with uh, everything they had to say about the, uh, the fact that climate change is happening, that it's mostly caused by fossil fuels, that it's having very bad impacts around the world, and they're only, only going to get worse if we continue to burn fossil fuels at this rate. And is this a win then for rights-based environmentalism? Uh, certainly in those places that have a constitutional right to a clean environment written into their constitutions. Six of the states in the U.S. have that right, including Montana. There are about 150 countries that have a constitutional right to a clean environment in their constitutions. So for all of those jurisdictions, this is definitely a very positive move. And the Montana Constitution states that that all Montanans have certain inalienable rights, including the right to a clean and healthful environment, and that the state and each person shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment in Montana for present and future generations. So what are the other states, Michael? Um, the most recent one is New York, but Hawaii, Pennsylvania, uh, Illinois, uh, uh, a couple of other states have it, a total of six. And we're shortly going to see a trial in Hawaii based on that state's environmental rights provision. And there's another one coming in Oregon as well, I think. Uh, the case in Oregon is not based on the state constitution. That's uh, an effort to try to establish a federal constitutional right to a clean environment, which we haven't had before. Right. And what are the chances of that? Well, that uh, case went up and down uh, quite a bit. It's a case called Juliana, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed the lawsuit by a, a vote of two to one. Uh, the plaintiffs have come back with a, a slightly more modest request, and that one is being taken up to the Ninth Circuit as well. So we'll see what happens with that. And in contrast to the right to a clean and healthful environment in Montana, the state of Montana's Environmental Policy Act forbids the state and its agents from considering the impacts of emissions, pollution, etc., on the environment and its connections to climate change. And there's already been a reaction from right-wing circles in Montana. Steve Daines, a re Republican senator, says activist judge is not even here in Montana are helping far-left environmentalists push their green hallucinations down the throats of Americans. Of course, Steve Daines has received more than $1.2 in oil and gas industry donations over his career. And he goes on to say, shutting down energy projects that support and all of the above energy portfolio is setting America on a dangerous path. We must reverse course. So what do you expect the pushback to be, Michael? The court told the uh, state that it was unconstitutional to bar the consideration of climate change and setting its energy policy. The court did not say what the energy policy of the state needed to be. Uh, so under the ruling, the state can go ahead and continue to 
uh, have coal mines and oil and gas drilling and so forth all at once. Uh, they just have to consider it. But but clearly, the the fossil fuel industry pushes back against anything that uh, that gets in the way, and and they are resisting even consideration of their impact of climate change in in these kinds of situations. So the the pushback is not at all uh, unexpected and. The quote you just read me from Senator Danes, I have to say, is over the top. So the the judge that ruled on this, Judge Kathy Seeley of the Mon- Montana District Court, she wrote in her ruling that Montana has 5,000 gas wells, 4,000 oil wells, four oil refineries and six coal mines, and the state is a major emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in terms of the world. Uh, in absolute terms, in per-person terms, and historically. And she went on to say that fossil fuels extracted, burned, processed, and exported by the state of Montana are responsible for as much carbon dioxide as is produced by Argentina, the Netherlands, or Pakistan. That's a pretty alarming statistic. And and especially since the principal defense that Montana raised in the trial. They didn't bother to try to refute the climate science. They knew they'd get creamed if they were to try to do that. Montana's principal defense is, uh, look, we uh, we are such a tiny portion of the global problem. Why are you bothering us? We're just little guys. And the court clearly was convinced quite the opposite. These statistics show that Montana is a significant contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So Tell us about the youth connection, because I think the plaintiffs in this ranged what from what's like, like five, five to twenty-two. Five, five to twenty-two. Wow. Right. So, what does that say? Well, there's a group called Our Children's Trust, which is a nonprofit group in Oregon that has organized uh, a lot of lawsuits like this around the country, and the idea was that uh, make the point quite starkly that the people who are going to be the chief victims of climate change are not uh, old fogies like us. It's going to be young people who, when they're older, are really going to be living in much worse uh, conditions. And and that worked. Uh, the, the, the plaintiff's lawyers did just a terrific job of presenting these appealing young people, all of them Montanans, showing how they are currently adversely affected in their health and other aspects by the impacts of climate change, the judge picked up on that and said that uh, someone born in 2020 is going to be subjected to much much worse climate uh, change than somebody born back in 1960. Well, I don't know whether you've watched any of these popular series about Montana, Yellowstone, and the prequel, 1923, but the prequel, 1923, is, is interesting because there is an environmental message in it, apart from one of the threads being the Native Americans, uh, particularly who are going to these horrible uh, church-run schools that erase their culture and jam this you know, horrible doctrines down their throat to be so-called white and civilized. But the the main villain in this in the story are, are the mining companies. I find interesting. So, do we have a sense of what is happening in Montana in terms of public opinion? Clearly, that young people they must feel that environmentalism is important to both the state and to their futures. Well, in terms of the elected officials in Montana, it's an all red state, 
Uh, I don't know if any of that is is changing. I think there are sort of blue pockets in the state where you have universities, but it's it's a red state, and it, it's not clear whether this has much effect on uh, on overall public opinion. It's a it's a state that uh, relies heavily on fossil fuel extraction, and it's hard to change public opinion in that kind of place. Well, the Republican challenging the Democratic Senator John Tester, he had posted some acknowledgement of global warming, etc., on his website, but has since taken it down. So I guess there's a kind of orthodoxy on the side of the Republicans that uh, you have to basically pretend that climate change doesn't exist. Somehow, in the face of volumes and volumes and truckloads of climate science, they're impervious to that. And is that something that's just inexorable, or is any reality chipping away at it? Is there any evidence of that? I mean, uh, well, it's a fairly it's a fairly recent phenomenon. You know, most of the U.S. environmental laws uh, were passed between 1970 and 1990, signed by Republican presidents with overwhelming bipartisan support. Uh, in the 2008 presidential election, the Republican nominee John McCain was for action on climate change. It's a very recent phenomenon that the Republican Party has turned against this, and since it happened fairly quickly, it, I'd like to hope that it can turn around fairly quickly. Well, particularly if they get the message that they're, they're losing losing the younger generation, and there's certainly some suggestions of that from what just happened in Montana. I think more and more young people are really realizing the gravity of the situation, and uh, except in places where they're fed you know, phony videos, uh, climate-denying videos like Governor DeSantis in Florida is trying to do. I, I think in a lot of places, if they look at all at at, at the science, even at a basic level, they see it's, it's, the conclusion is inescapable that fossil fuels are having horrible impacts. And we look around the world, we see at the catastrophe that just happened in Maui on top of floods and heat waves and all kinds of other disasters around the world. It's getting harder and harder to deny. Well, particularly uh, in countries with with forests like Montana, look at what's happening in Canada, particularly in the north. That's right, and the imp- and the impacts don't stay local. You know, we we've seen that the smoke from these wildfires can cross a continent and cause very unhealthy conditions hundreds or even thousands of miles away. So, in effect, what just happened in Montana was that climate science was was on trial, and the court found that science is right, right? Exactly right. The court resoundingly found that the climate scientists who testified were right. They presented compelling evidence, and that there was uh, really no serious question about the causes and impacts of climate change. And in the evidence, was it global, not just relating to... Montana itself, in terms of protecting the Amazon, for example, the fires in in Canada, heating ocean. We just heard the most out- alarming statistics coming from the Florida Keys, where the water temperature was as hot as a jacuzzi. And then you've got the Arctic sea ice melting. There's a lot of evidence out there. Did did they present a global case? Well, no. The the case was brought in Montana under Montana law, and there was a very uh, careful effort to focus on the impacts on Montana. Uh, That's the case they had to prove, but the 
backdrop is exactly as you described. And these phenomena that are happening in Montana are really happening on a on a global basis. And we're seeing, as you say, alarming um, heat waves. South America, which should be in the winter, is facing um, uh, unprecedented heat that it's never had before, even in the summer. Uh, the Arctic is melting at a faster pace than ever before. The seas are rising at a faster pace. This is happening globally. And Montana is one place, but it's happening everywhere. Well, and there's going to be a heat dome over the over the middle of the United States, right, starting in the next few days. Yeah, and, and uh, it, one particular danger with that is when it hits northern areas where people traditionally haven't needed air conditioning, uh, it's really dangerous uh, to to be in that kind of heat without air conditioning, and so uh, you have a, a, a spike in fatalities when when that occurs, especially if we don't have adequate social services to look in on elderly people living alone and that kind of thing. So people have been dying from heat in increasing numbers, right? That is a a new phenomenon. Uh, that's right, but but it's it's gone up, and right. uh, there was a heat dome over the Pacific Northwest a couple of years that caused a lot of people in Washington State and British Columbia to die. Um, and uh, uh, I think the bottom line is no place is safe. Uh, Maui was a tropical paradise, and now part of it is burned down with horrific loss of life. No place is really safe, and. Uh, our elected officials really, really need to take this seriously, regardless of what party they're in. So given that this happened in a red state, but we've already talked about the backlash from the incumbents who get large donations from oil and gas and coal companies, what's your broader sense of the politics of this? I mean, today, President Biden celebrated the one-year anniversary of the IRA, which, of course, has a lot of investment in electrification and other other methods of dealing with uh, climate change. And Biden kept stressing, to his mind, jobs and climate, one and the same, jobs, climate, jobs and climate. So I think he's going to be able to sell that as opposed to the global warming deniers on the other side, who, for some reason or other, still are sticking to their ignorance. One irony is that although the Inflation Reduction Act uh, passed a year ago did not receive a single Republican vote in either the House or the Senate, most of the money is going to red states. And now the Republican members of Congress who who voted against it are praising the projects that are being built as a result. Uh, When President Biden says that uh, that, uh, fighting climate change is jobs, he's exactly right. We're, we're going to see an enormous growth of jobs uh, uh, as a result of the wind and solar and transmission and storage and everything else that's necessary. And all the studies show that far more jobs are created by this clean energy than by moving away from fossil fuels. Uh, so on the merits, he's absolutely right. And hopefully it'll penetrate some skulls, the, this, this reality. Well, Michael Gerard, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. 
And again, I've been speaking with Michael Gerard, who's a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is the director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States. And he has an article at MSNBC, A Deep Red State Just Delivered a Huge Win for Climate Justice. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into Biden's celebration of the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act at the White House today. And we'll discuss Bidenomics with an economist who drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and he continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy, and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, and his latest books are Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett. Thanks, Ian. Really great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Robert. And today, President Biden celebrated the first anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is obviously not exactly what the act is about, since it's about a lot of green green New Deal initiatives, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, the stuff that you've been working on with AOC. And he kept saying, you know, that jobs and climate are one and the same. So mm-hmm. he's finally selling his accomplishments, which has been strange, mm-hmm. because the people in this country, according to polls, don't feel good about the economy, and yet mm-hmm. all the indications, and you're an economist, mm-hmm. I mean, isn't this... A remarkably good economy. It is. I mean, uh, by any any number of different uh, measures, right? I mean, first of all, if you compare the American economy to all of the world's other economies, and that includes, you know, so-called developed uh, country economies and uh, underdeveloped or still developing country economies, and even the Chinese economy at this point, uh, the American economy is looking just kind of amazingly good. I mean, we brought that inflation way, way, way back down. There's still a little bit more to go, but not all that much. And there hasn't been any uh, recession of the kind that people like Larry Summers were claiming would be necessary if we were to bring, if we were actually to go ahead and bring down that inflation rate. Um, we're still at record low unemployment, uh, something like the lowest rate in over 60 years. The uh, job or workforce participation rate 
is higher than it's been in decades. That was one of the huge uh, sort of negative indicators that followed on the 2008 crash was the labor force participation rate numbers were so low. Those are finally back up. Those did not go back up during the Obama years. They did not go back up during the Trump years. And now they're back up during the Biden years. Um, meanwhile, um, these um, Inflation Reduction Act investments uh, that had earmarked about $400 billion, uh, we've got $224 billion already underway, uh, that many projects or that much in where products is already underway, 100,000 uh, new jobs um, being um, created uh, in those realms. And these are the traditional, you know, sort of high paying, well unionized manufacturing jobs. So uh, Mr. Biden has sort of lived up to his word by and large in bringing back manufacturing to the American economy again for the first time since the old outsourcing heyday began in the 1990s under Clinton. And this is happening in red states, right? A lot yes. of this money, if not most of it, is being spent in red states. Yeah, and this was another thing I think was both savvy and in a certain sense just or fair on the administration's part. It recognized that the parts of the country that have been hardest hit by the deindustrialization and the outsourcing craziness that was underway during the Clinton and Bush uh, years and the Obama years to a degree as well, were largely those red states. Um, so there's one reason to do it there. Um, there's, of course, a political reason that is, uh, connects up with that, and that is that a lot of the sort of pain and despair that led those states to becoming red in the first place and led them to finding, you know, kind of false promises by a Trump appealing was because of that same deindustrialization. So I think Biden has made a, a kind of a short term and a long term calculation that, well, these are the hardest hit states. And so they really need the help the most. But then secondly, um, they're probably not going to stay as red if people aren't kept in the sort of desperate straits that they've, you know, kind of fallen into since the Clinton years. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it seems to be working so well in the red states that you've actually got um, <laughs> red state uh, legislators uh, in Congress boasting about these things, even though, of course, they voted against them all. Right. <laughs> yeah, Tommy Turberville, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, we could go through yeah. the list of, and Robin Burbitt, the worst of these clowns, yes. um, are taking credit. But clearly today's White House event is an attempt by the Biden administration, to, you know, to try and reverse the fact that he's not getting any credit. And, you know, and particularly from the Inflation Reduction Act, their messages are not getting through. According to Washington Post, a recent Washington Post poll, seven in ten respondents uh, said they've heard little to nothing about the Inflation Reduction Act, and you know, we know that Biden's approval ratings are underwater. And according to a recent CNN poll, seventy-five percent of Americans said that economic conditions were poor. Mm -hmm. So there, there's your problem. So is this yeah. just messaging? I mean, is the lack of messaging or bad messaging or too late messaging? How do you see it? Yeah, I think it's primarily two things, Ian, at least that would be my, my best guess is primarily two things. First of all, as you say, I mean, the messaging has been awful. There seems to be a reluctance on the part of Mr. Biden uh, to kind of go around, you know, kind of blowing his own horn or sort of touting his accomplishments uh, and, and the like. Um, and that reticence on his part is, I think, would be pretty noticeable against any sort of baseline. But if you if you measure it against the baseline of Trump in particular, who basically boasted you know, for that, that boasted about having invented the, you know, the the prime numbers in the real number system, you know, basically created the universe, um, compared to the kind of 
preposterous boasting that uh, Trump was, you know, constantly engaged in. Biden looks, you know, positively, you know, uh, like a, a self-effacing humble monk or something in comparison. So that's part of the problem is that he and his administration until relatively recently haven't been, you know, out front promoting the accomplishments and, and also promoting what more needs to be done. And the second uh, reason, I think, is probably just the traditional lag time uh, that always uh, occurs or always transpires between, um, you know, real change and, and real accomplishment in the econ on the economic side of things, on the one hand, and people's beginning to feel and notice uh, those changes and those differences on the other. But that's beginning to come around because all the measures of consumer sentiment and inflationary expectations and all the other sorts of things that we track in order to get a feel um, for where consumer sentiment is going and where ordinary you know, working folks' uh, expectations are going are beginning to turn up now. Right, where pe people are beginning to uh, express in sort of polls and the like um, much more optimistic expectations now than they were this time last year when the IRA was actually passed. Well, but we're dealing with a kind of backdrop here, or a background noise from this man who is is a curse, a blight upon the land, who won't go away. He's just been indicted for a fourth time. And he keeps dominating the news cycle and keeps dragging the press down his rabbit hole, you know, with escalating racism and dog whistles and hate mongering. And I mean, the, this is the problem, isn't it? I mean, what the, this is what Biden's up against, you know. Is the public really interested in hearing about the the real economic numbers, or the or they they just feasting on this? banquet of chaos and hate and insanity that's served up every day by this career criminal and god you know i won't i won't go into many more adjectives but you know what i mean yeah i do know what you mean you know, i think i think you're quite right i mean that seems to me to be a very important factor here as well is it, it's a little hard to be heard even if your signal is clear uh and even if your signal is you know sort of um, unashamed and, and is, 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 is content to sort of tout accomplishments, even if you're that way, which Biden tends not to be, you still have to contend with the noise that would be, you know, possibly drowning out the signal. And and there's an awful lot of noise right now. I mean, this is the first time that a, a president sitting or former uh, has been indicted. Um, that's because this is the first time a president has done indictable things, right? Um, and it's happened four times, and that does tend to get the attention. And as you say, um, Trump himself and all of his kind of, uh, you know, kind of cultist supporters uh, tend to, you know, be louder people in general. And, and so they do make it a lot harder to hear uh, anything sensible. And then if you add to that, this sort of general uh, tendency, I think, that we have as human beings, maybe owing to our sort of hard wiring, uh, to sort of notice first whatever is louder or whatever is most spectacular or whatever is most um, you know, morbid in the kind of the rubberneck tendency that many people have. Well, you know, there's that's there's a psychological sort of programming issue here that makes it even harder for us to listen to, you know, ordinary kind of maybe boring things like economic numbers or statistics of one sort or another when we've got, you know, all these kind of social media types 
calling for civil war in order to defend Trump against the, the you know, the Biden administration's politicizing or weaponizing of the judiciary or whatever. Never mind, of course, that um, a grand jury is a group of one's peers. It's not a government office. <laughs> when grand juries hand out indictments, that means the people have handed down indictments. But none of that's going to be heard because of the kind of noise that's being you know, quite deliberately propagated by the, the Trumpists uh, out there. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a miracle that Biden's being heard at all. And so I guess I want to congratulate him all the more for finally realizing that he's got to start doing something to get the message out. I mean, that's something that FDR was a master of. And Obama you know, wants to think of himself as the sort of next FDR, or at least the next best thing to FDR. And he might do well then to begin with more fireside chats, so to speak. Right. <laughs> Well, he's a terrible public speaker, it's just unfortunate. But, you know, I'm out here in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and or otherwise known as the Democratic Party's ATM, the mm-hmm. West Side, where there are constant fundraisers going on. And, you know, they're still, the Hollywood types, you know, they treat politics and presidential politics like a casting session for a movie. They're still casting for an alternative on the Democratic side to Joe Biden. I mean, when are they going to just get over this nonsense and accept the fact that he's the the candidate, he's running, and he has to win? Otherwise, you have American fascism. Yeah, I think that's their only hope uh, for 2024, at least. I mean, obviously, everything changes um, when 2028 looms. But this time around, I just don't see any other candidate actually, you know, winning it for the Democrats. Um, and so I, I do think that um, probably what's needed uh, is for, you know, for them to, you know, the Dems to get their act together and keep united for the time being. Um, this has been something that, as you know, Democrats have not historically known for this. And they've, you know, for being able to sort of unify and, and sort of sing a sing from a common hymnal and the, and the like. But one of the great uh, pleasant surprises of 2020 was when they did do that, when Bernie sort of, in effect, joined forces with Joe and they became a kind of solid block. And all of the Bernie crats like me could feel good about that, um, in addition to all the, you know, the, the more sort of mainstream uh, Democrats. And it's, it's, I think, the secret to all of the accomplishments of the last several years. Um, and I think we have to kind of keep that magic going for a little bit longer. Um, and then, you know, it'll be a free for all, of course, when we try to figure out who the next the next, I'm sorry, the heir apparent will become 2028. I, I do a lot of work for Ro Khanna, and I'm kind of hoping it's going to be Ro, but that's for 2028, which Ro himself, I think, noteworthily uh, himself says that, look, don't talk about me or think about me in this connection until 28. Um, and, I, you know, they're all going to have to do, I think, the Ro Khanna thing, like put it off until 28. And for the time being, rally around the flag, <laughs> rally around the candidate, and let's keep it going for a bit. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Robert Hockett, Bidenomics is is now what the White House is promoting. And they yeah. sort of were a little skittish about it and yeah. it, but then Biden embraced it fully. And yeah. of course it's you know, it's a play on Reaganomics, which were the yeah. the opposite of Bidenomics, yeah. clearly. So do you think that's a tactical mistake? I mean, if things don't go well, on the other hand, it feels like a leap of faith that he's he's realizing that it's going to get better. He's going to make the economy better in spite of everything. And he has, he's something to be proud of, Bidenomics. Yeah, I think he has to go all in with that, uh, Ian, because I think um, 
you know, if, if the economy were to tank, um, he would be blamed anyway, right? Or if things were to go south and not continue on the, the apparently northward course that things are on right now, he would be blamed anyway. Uh, so I don't think he's like taking any serious risk by associating himself uh, with what's going to happen. Um, I do think uh, another way to put this would be to say that I think you're more likely to be associated automatically with a bad economy than you are to be associated automatically with an improving economy. It just seems to be the way it works for some reason. And so for that reason, I think that owing to that asymmetry, it seems to me that it makes perfectly good sense for Biden to associate himself with the changes that are underway right now, particularly given um, that we know, as I, as I know from the data, that things are still going to keep on getting better on the score, right? We've got many more jobs coming down the pike. We've got more and more factory projects being announced when it comes to semiconductor production, when it comes to electric vehicle production, when it comes to windmill uh, production, solar panel production. The U.S. really does bid fair now, I think, to become the world's most powerful manufacturing nation again, precisely because we put our chips, so to speak, on uh, the industries of tomorrow. And it's noteworthy, I think, that that's exactly the way we talked about the Green New Deal when uh, AOC's team and I announced it back in early 2019. It was all about how this is not an either or, that the way that you retake world leadership in manufacturing is by jumpstarting and leapfrogging to the industries of tomorrow. And the industries of tomorrow are the green tech industries. That's just where we're going. We're not gonna you know, keep burning things like we did when we were cave people uh, or cave dwellers um, to power ourselves any longer. We're finally gonna you know, move into the modern or even the, the sort of ultra modern era when it comes to um, the industries that we're going to be um, investing in now. And so it's just going to keep getting better uh, in, in, in all of these, along all of these metrics, I think, Ian. And so Biden can do nothing better, it seems to me, than to see to it that uh, he is associated with this because he has indeed uh, been the visionary president and his administration has been the visionary administration to get this going in a serious way instead of a token or nominal way. Well, Robin Harkett, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You bet, Ian. Thanks so much again. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. 
Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305